Well, good morning, everybody. It's good to see you. If you got your Bible, open it up to uh, Matthew chapter 5, <clears throat> and we are going to be uh, continuing our series. Um, if you're a guest with us or just joining us or haven't been in a little bit, uh, we are walking through uh, faithfully Matthew chapters 5 through 7. We're looking at the greatest sermon ever preached, um, preached by Jesus himself. And we're going to be walking through this together, and uh, we're a few weeks into it, <clears throat> but uh, I'll catch you up just a little bit. But if you don't mind, if you'll stand uh, just for the reading of God's Word, uh, we don't do this to be weird or to be high church or anything like that, but it is a good physical reminder of the authority of God's Word, which we're going to talk all about that uh, today. So um, <clears throat> let me read this to you. This is Matthew uh, 5, 17 through 20. It says this, do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Of heaven. You can have a seat and I'll pray for us as we jump in. <clears throat> Lord, we're grateful for your word. Um, God, it promises to do um, so much more than I can. Uh, I can't do anything. God, apart from you, I can do nothing. I don't have the power to change a single person's heart, um, to stir up any affection for them, to love you more, to serve you more, to walk with you more, um, but your word does. Um, so God, it does not return void. Help us to stand on it. Um, God, to submit our lives to it, to see it as our authority. Um, God, teach us during this time. In Jesus' name we pray. <clears throat> Amen. Well, um, I uh, was a teenager before and uh, remember those days very well. And uh, if you have a teenager, know a teenager, are a teenager, um, you probably know what it's like uh, to be given commands uh, from your parents. And uh, me and my um, entitlement days especially, uh, I can remember lots of different times where um, I was given a command and I just took the letter of the law to the fullest. Um, take an example, and this is I've probably done something like this. Uh, my dad's actually in here, so he'll either affirm or deny this. Um, but I see this all the time with teenagers. I did this all the time in different areas of life. <clears throat> but essentially, you're given a command, like mow the lawn, right? And uh, <clears throat> given the command, it's pretty simple. Hey, I want you to mow the lawn, like start to finish. And then I'm done mowing the lawn, and it's like, well, why is there grass uh, over there by the road that's not cut? And it's like, well, I, that belongs to the city, Dad. Um, you told me to mow the lawn. And it's, well... Why are there still toys in the yard? And it's like, well, Dad, you didn't ask me to pick up the toys. Uh, you just asked me to mow the lawn. Some of you with parents and teenagers, you might just want to start nudging or whatever, right? It's, uh, well, <clears throat> why didn't you weed eat? Well, you didn't ask me to weed eat, right? You just asked me to mow the lawn. So I mowed the lawn. And it's, well, what happened to Mom's flowers? And it's, well, Dad, sorry, they were in the lawn. Uh, so now they're a part of the lawn, right? Uh, whatever it is. <clears throat> Why is there loose grass in the driveway? Well, you didn't ask me to sweep the driveway. You just asked me to mow the lawn. And I'm done. And why is the lawnmower still out there? Well, it ran out of gas. And you didn't ask me to fill up the lawnmower. You just asked me to mow the lawn. And it's like on and on and on it goes, right? <clears throat> just the letter of the law to the T. 
Um, that is not someone that's obeying the command um, out of grace or out of love and communion and relationship and intimacy. That is someone who's obeying the letter of the law. And why do I tell you that? Uh, because we've all been there for one. And two, um, this is exactly where we find Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount is this was the culture of the day. You've got the Pharisees who were the religious leaders of the day and they took God's law, which on its own, and it wasn't called the old law or the old Testament. It was just the law. Um, There wasn't a new Testament yet. They were living in those days. Um, It was just the law of God. And the Pharisees took the law of God and essentially um, the law is made up of 613 commandments. And they not only um, used those as a burden for people, they added 1,500 plus more to it to burden people and to control people and to establish themselves as um, righteous in the sight of man and all of those kind of things. So they not only thought that 613 laws of God weren't sufficient, and I would argue that they actually had a low view of God. We think because of the Pharisees and they were so focused on God's law that they had a high view of it. They did not because they didn't think it was enough. They added 1,500 plus more Um, They actually had a very low view of God, and they actually thought that they could attain it. They were standing in their own righteousness and in their own works. They were thinking that they were good according to 2,000 rules. I've got this down. Look at me. Look at how righteous I am. They actually had a very low view of God's law. If you look at the prodigal son parable, um, it's not the older brother that had a high view of God's law. He actually thought he was doing well. It was the younger brother who said, I can't do any of this and just left, right? And this is, let me just side note here, second service, I can be a little loose with um, notes and all those kind of things. Um, This is why I am not going to get up here and give you three minutes of Bible and then bring out lots of props and jokes and entertain you for the other 30 minutes. I'm not gonna do it. Either I believe scripture is sufficient or it's not. And if scripture is sufficient to save and to um, increase our affections for Christ and our obedience for God, then I'm just going to open up the Bible and help explain it. But you see lots of pastors and preachers all through every Sunday, probably on the reels, on your Instagram and all those kind of things that just give you gimmick after gimmick after gimmick. And I would argue it's because they don't believe the scriptures are sufficient. Otherwise, they would open up their Bibles and just start reading and explaining what it says instead of walking around and trying to entertain you and impress you with big, lavish things. We believe scripture is sufficient. And I unapologetically am going to open the Bible and give you scripture because I can't do anything to change your heart, but I know this can. This is the word of God and it's sufficient to save you. It's sufficient to grow you and to sanctify you. It's sufficient to increase your intimacy with God. All of those things. It's sufficient for your daily living until Christ returns, for you to live a life of godliness. It is sufficient. And you can see the Pharisees, they don't believe that because they end up adding 1,500 extra rules. And in fact, most of Jesus's interaction with the Pharisees was Jesus intentionally breaking those 1,500 rules on purpose because they weren't God's law. It was man's law. So the Pharisees would take rules like, let me give you an example just so you understand what I mean. Like, you're supposed to rest on the Sabbath, And they said, yeah, yeah, but let's determine what that actually means. Let's add 30 more rules to determine what it means to actually rest. So you can't pick up a certain amount of weight. If you pick up a little weight, you're fine. But if you pick up X amount of weight, now you're working. Now you're not resting anymore. So unfortunately, if your baby weighed more than the designated amount, then you couldn't pick them up on the Sabbath because now you were working. 
And you can't walk a certain length on the Sabbath because now you're exerting yourself and you're sweating and all of those things. So you see how quickly they just started adding rules to the law? <clears throat> and Jesus comes through and he doesn't hold to any of those things because he is the word of God. He knows the law of God and he's walking on the Sabbath and he's eating things and they stop him and like, why are you eating that on the Sabbath? It's working. You plucked the, the fig from the, the tree. That's work. What are you doing? And this is all of Jesus's conflict. It was he was intentionally going through and showing the Pharisees that they added to God's law. And in fact, he said, you've added so much that you've forsaken the heart of the law of justice and mercy and all of those kind of things. And that's what the Pharisees would do is they would add things to the law to make them seem good and righteous and awesome and pure and all of those kind of things. But you, actually, they were using their extra laws to their own advantage. So instead of looking out for the poor and the widows and the needy among them, they would say, yeah, but we have this rule where I have to dedicate this money to the Lord, right? So I can't, unfortunately, I can't help you because this is dedicated to God, according to our rules. And they were totally neglecting the heart of God and the law of God and submitting themselves to their own rules. And most of the time they confronted Jesus, it was, why aren't you following our rules? This is our interpretation of the law. 1,500 more things you need to do. And over and over and over again, they would use the law to leave women that they didn't want anymore. They would add extra law, all these kind of things. They were using it to their own advantage so that they would seem righteous on the outside, but they were far from righteous on the inside. And this was actually Jesus's critique of them over and over and over again. What did he say? He said, you honor me with your lips, but what? Your heart is far from me, your heart. And we can often forget that the Old Testament law, we usually equate it to 613 things you have to do. It's just a bunch of do's. It's not really about our heart. What does Jesus or what does God say in 1 Samuel? He says that man looks, man looks at the outward appearance, but God looks at what? At the heart. God is always concerned with the heart. In fact, the first few, first three, first four of the Ten Commandments are all about our heart. It's all about our vertical relationship with God to not have idols, to love God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, all of those kind of things. Even the, the priority commandments, the first four, were about our vertical relationship and our heart with God, and then the other six are about our horizontal relationship with other people. But the God of the Old Testament, which is Jesus, he is God, is three in one, same God, has always been concerned with our hearts. And it's a misconception to think that the Old Testament is just about our hands and about our behavior. But it is about our hearts. In fact, before God gives us any commands, he says, you're my people, I've chosen you, I've redeemed you. And Exodus 19 comes before Exodus 20. And Exodus 20 is all the rules, but Exodus 19 is I saved you, I redeemed you, you're my chosen people, you're my treasured possession. I have redeemed you and saved you and you did nothing to deserve it. Now here's how I want you to govern yourselves and live in a way that is good and right and pleasing. Does that make sense? And essentially, if we look at the New Testament, um, he says all of the law, if you wanna summarize it, is to love God and love your neighbor as yourself. Over and over again in the New Testament, we see that, but because our hearts wander, because it would turn into a free-for-all, God gave his people 613 other commandments to govern them, govern them and to legislate them. Um, <clears throat> Tyler Stevenson actually told this story, uh, and this is cool, I don't wanna take any credit for this. Uh, every week, a few of our uh, guys on staff and a few ladies get together and open up our Bible as we prepare for the Sunday morning message. And I learn a lot from the things they have to bring to the table and the things that they share. And Tyler said, it's essentially like Tyler has three kids and uh, one of them, just his youngest just turned one a few days ago. And then um, he's got two older sisters. I think it's like 
five and seven or five and eight, something like that. Um, but they have a new baby, they have a toddler, and uh, they gave their daughters one command, which is love your brother, right? And we would think that would be sufficient enough, but we find out really quickly, but if, if that's the command, then Tyler found out really fast that, okay, we need more commandments than just love your brother because love your brother doesn't mean, you know, to sit on his head and to put pillows over his face and to draw on him and all of those kind of things, right? We need more commands than that. And that's essentially how the law of God works. It's, if you wanna summarize it, it's to love God and love your neighbor, but left to our own devices, we get the book of Judges, right? Probably the most rated R book in all of the Bible. And what is the theme of the book of Judges? That everyone did what was right in their own eyes. Everyone did what they thought was right. So we, we're approaching the Bible, we're approaching this chapter in this culture where you've got the Pharisees who are using the law to make people think they're righteous, but their hearts are far from God. You've got Jesus calling his disciples, and we've looked at the first 12 verses of <clears throat> the Sermon on the Mount, and it's all about who you are if you're a believer. If you are a genuine believer in Jesus, and it has everything to do with the attitudes of the heart, you're poor in spirit right? You realize that spiritually, I have nothing to offer. I have no good works to bring, that I'm a wretch, that I'm broken, and I'm speaking for myself here, that I am miserable in my own works, that I can't do enough. I'm not good enough. My heart wanders all the time. I'm deceptive. I try to steal glory. I'm selfish. All those kind of things. That spiritually, I am bankrupt. That's the heart of a genuine believer in Jesus, is we realize that we bring nothing to the table. We're poor in spirit, and then we mourn over our sin, right? We, if, if I'm left to have to be good enough for God to love me, I can never be good enough, and I mourn over that. And because I mourn over my sin, what do we do? We hunger and we thirst for righteousness. We need a new righteousness. We need someone to make us righteousness. We need a righteousness that's not our own. And the good news of the gospel is that Jesus has become our righteousness, Right? We hunger and thirst for righteousness. We've been given God's righteousness in the gospel, and now we're persecuted for righteousness' sake, and on and on and on he goes. But the first 12 verses of the sermon are all about the inward heart of a believer. This is who you are. And then last week, we looked at verses 13 through 16, as this is essentially, in summary, what you do. You're the salt of the earth. You're the light of the world. You shine, like John the Baptist. Uh, we're not the true light, but the light of Jesus Christ has been given to us in the gospel. He's given us his spirit, and we bear witness about the true light. And in so, we're lights of the world. We're salt of the earth. That we preach the gospel, we live in such a way that we point people to Jesus, and Lord willing, it creates a hunger like salt does. It creates a hunger and a thirst for the things of God and for God himself. Verse 12 is who we are. 13 through 16 is what we do. And naturally, if you remember how the sermon starts, you've got the crowds that are gathering around because Jesus has done all of these incredible things. Um, the spirit of God descended on him. The heavens opened and God himself spoke when Jesus was baptized and said, this is my beloved son. This is the one you've been waiting for. This is the Messiah in whom I'm well pleased. So you've got all these crowds. Jesus has called his disciples. He started healing and doing miracles and all those kind of things. Crowds are gathering around. And then you've got the genuine followers of Jesus that are with him, his disciples. You've got crowds, you've got Pharisees, you've got scribes trying to figure out, okay, what's going on with this guy? Who is he? He's speaking with an authority that we've never seen before, right? Most scribes and Pharisees, they would either quote other rabbis or they would quote the Old Testament, and Jesus is about to say, you've heard it said this way, but truly I say to you, right? Like he's speaking with a whole nother authority. And they're going, who is this guy? 
And naturally, they would begin to wonder, okay, how does he view the law of God? Is he outside of it? Is he above it? Is he doing away with it? What is he, how does he treat the law of God? And some of you might be wondering that this morning, essentially, is what do we do? If I'm a believer in Jesus, what do I do with all these 613 commands? How do I go about obeying those? Am I bound to them? Do those apply to me? How do I read the Old Testament and know what to do and what not to do? Are those done? Am I supposed to be you know, doing all these ceremonial washings before I show up here and all those kind of things? What do we do? How do we view the Old Testament? And Jesus is gonna give us um, a high view of the law. Jesus didn't show up um, to add extra traditions or anything like that. Jesus came to uphold and he'll even say to fulfill the law. So let's look at it. This is our text this morning. We start in verse 17. It says this, do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. So if you wanna know kind of a summary, the law and the prophets, it's kind of code word for the Old Testament. The law is the first five books of Moses or the Pentateuch is the fancy word for it, but it's, it's regarded as the law. And the prophets are all the other writings, the major and minor prophets, um, all the books. So if it's, it's a title for the Old Testament, Old Testament law. He says, I have not come to abolish the law of the prophets. I'm not getting away with them. I'm not pulling the rug out from under them. I'm not outside of them. He says, I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. And side note, Matthew has been showing us this all throughout the first five chapters, and he'll do it all throughout the book. Matthew actually uses the word fulfill in his gospel more than any of the other gospels combined. You'll see Jesus is born in Bethlehem, and he'll, Matthew will do a little side note and say, this was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, that he would be born in Bethlehem. And Jesus went here, went to Egypt, fled to Egypt. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet. And you see Matthew just taking every little part of Jesus's life and connecting it to the Old Testament, that Jesus is the fulfillment. And Matthew starts doing this for us, and then we have Jesus himself saying out loud that he didn't come to abolish them, he came to fulfill them. And then he says this um, in verse 18. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. So Jesus actually elevates the law. He's got a high view of the law. He doesn't lower the standard. No, no, no. He says not an iota, not a dot. And if just for kicks, um, iota is the smallest, shortest letter in the Greek language, um, essentially just an I. And then a dot um, most commentators believe, is the smallest mark you can make in the Hebrew language to distinguish between two letters. So not like the dot of an I, not the smallest in the Greek or the smallest in the Hebrew will ever change, will fade away, will pass away. None of it's going to fade. None of it's gonna pass <clears throat> until heaven and earth pass away. Raises the value of the law. Doesn't lower it, doesn't need to add to it. It's sufficient. And let me just say this, side note, this is why we preach the scriptures. Because if you are getting your view of right and wrong from culture, if you're getting it from social media, look at the last two years. Culture changes left and right. Culture will take you down a route and betray you, stab you in the back from the same path that it took you on. Let me give you, I mean, not in the notes, but let me give you an example. This is what we see with sexual sin all the time. 
What does culture portray in the media and TV shows that it's just physical, that it's not anything important, that yeah, just go for it, whatever feels right, do it, all those kind of things. That's culture's values around sex, that it's essentially just exercise, you know, here's all these things. But then what happens when you mess up sexually? Stab you in the back, cancel you, write you off, never get a job again, you know, crucify this person. Do you see how if you try to get your values and your ideas from culture, we're not up here to give you the latest cultural thing. In fact, we're up here to give you a biblical view of culture, of gender, of race, of all of the issues of our day. You need to come find truth in the scriptures because all of those things, culture, everything will pass away. It will. But Jesus says his words will never pass away. Word of the Lord stands forever. And this is where we find truth not from the latest cultural idea. This is the truth that we stand on. It is proven the test of time and it will not fade until Jesus Christ returns. The word of God will not fade until the work of God is done. And we hold to the word of God. So Jesus elevates the word and he says, truly I say to you. Now this is interesting. This is the first time in a lot of times that Jesus is gonna say, truly I say to you. Um, That phrase is Interesting, because if we believe that Jesus was the word of God, according to John 1, in the beginning was the word, the word was with God, the word was God, Um, John 1, 14, that the word became flesh, Jesus became a human and dwelt among us. This is literally, if the word of God is the law of God and Jesus is the word of God, this is the law of God himself saying, truth himself saying, truly I say to you. This is why preachers and commentators put so much emphasis around that phrase because it is truth himself in human form talking. And then he says, now truly I say to you. So truth himself is saying, now this is true and I want you to get it. So we need to lean in. We need to see what he says. And this is what he says. For truly I say to you, and the you there is plural. So disciples, crowds, scribes, Pharisees, everybody. And what does Jesus do? Until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until it's all accomplished. Now, we just read the word not, right? Not this and not this will pass. Um, In the Greek language, um, it's a double negative there. It's two no's. It's will not not pass. And in English, right, when we hear a double negative, we think, okay, you know, for example, like don't not say anything. We have to do all this math and like, okay, those cancel out. so, So say something, right? That's not how the Greek works. In the Greek, it strengthens. So when you put two no's there, it's an emphatic no. So emphatically, until heaven and earth pass away, not a single mark, not a single dot, not the smallest differentiation between letters, not the dot of an I, not the cross of a T, none of God's word will pass away until it's all accomplished. None of it. The grass withers, flowers fade, but the word of the Lord stands forever. None of it's gonna fade. That's 1 Peter, I believe, the end of chapter one, if you want to to have that reference. But it's an emphatic no. And then he says in verse 19, therefore, whoever relaxes, and this sounds like an intimidating verse, but it's actually comforting, and I'll tell you why. Um, Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. And instantly, when we start seeing greatest and least, we're like, okay, what's going on? But notice that both of these people are in the kingdom of heaven. That's the weirdest observation to me. 
And don't ask me to explain what it looks like to be greatest in the kingdom or least in the kingdom. But Jesus came from his mouth, clearly says that if we loosen, if we don't take these as seriously, if we don't have a high view of God's law and strive to obey it and to know him by it, and we teach others to do the same, our behavior doesn't help, doesn't cause us to lose our salvation, right? We're still in the kingdom of heaven, but there's some degrees there. Um, the good news about heaven is there won't be any coveting, there won't be any lack, right? There won't be any sin, there won't be any jealousy or anything like that. And in heaven, we see a picture or a description in Revelation where we are given uh, reward for how faithful we are, not for our good or bad behavior, but our faithfulness and how we stewarded the gospel and we're given crowns. But the good news is we give all of those crowns, we throw them back at the feet of Jesus because the only reason we're there in the first place is because of his finished work on the cross. But we see some degrees here and we actually see some weights have different commands and all of those kind of things, which is interesting. The least of these commandments and the greatest of these commandments. Um, I can't give you a list of what those look like, but I can imagine that some of the least of the commandments were very kind of tertiary, like grain offerings and things like that. And some of the weightier commandments are probably like don't murder <laughs> and don't steal. Uh, we see Paul give us a little insight into this in 1 Corinthians 6 when he talks about sexual sin. He doesn't say that one is more sinful than the other, right? They're all equally sinful. They all mar the image of God in us. They all are deserving. The wages of sin is death. Romans 6, we all, they all bring death and incur death for us. But Paul says in 1 Corinthians that um, all other sins are this way. They're outside the body. But when you sin sexually, you actually sin against your own body. And he gives it a different weight. It doesn't mean it's, you know, these sins are okay because they're less weighty and these sins aren't okay. He's not getting into any of that. They're all sinful. They all are deserving of wrath and judgment and all of those things. They all separate us from God. But for some reason, Jesus does use the term least of these and greatest of these. Um, but the comfort is in all of those things is that our salvation, if you're a genuine believer, is who Jesus was talking to, is not based on your behavior. Both are still in the kingdom of heaven. If your salvation is based on your ability to obey God's law, as we are about to dive into, you will never be saved. Because you and I, I, I can never be good enough. If my salvation is based on my own ability to be a good person, to love God with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength, all of those things, I can't do it. I was telling the men at the lunch this week, uh, we were walking through Philippians 2, and <clears throat> some of the guys that I meet with and kind of walk through the scriptures with, we took one command. Let's say, let's pretend and you guys, you can pretend with me. Let's pretend that your salvation, your ability for God to love you and to get to heaven and all those kind of things is based on your ability to obey one command. One, not 613, just one. And we picked the command that says, do nothing without grumbling or complaining. And I took my guys and I said, all right, here, let's try this this week. Let's see how long we can go. Let's see if we can win our salvation by this command to not do anything without grumbling or complaining. And if you fail, I want you to just throw an emoji hand in the group text. You don't have to say what it was, just drop a hand in. And it wasn't 15 minutes. One of our elders after Thursday said, I didn't make it off of Winchester and I had already failed, right? Like if our salvation, even if you pick one command, which compared to murder, I would, you know, I, I don't wanna play the game of which one's greatest and which one's least, but it definitely doesn't seem as great as murder. One command. If your salvation is based on your ability to obey one command, we fail every single time, every single time. 
And just a side note, complaining is like the language of our culture, isn't it? I mean, we start relationships with complaining. Like, man, these people are taking forever, aren't they? They're so slow. They, you know, yada, yada, yada. This is terrible. It's weather. Oh, my goodness. Right? Like we, that's how we start conversations. We create apps for people to just go and complain. Like, whoever thought social media would just be this perfect place where everyone would connect and have a good time and all those kind of things. Uh, I made the mistake of, one, getting on um, Facebook during November of an election year, and that was awful. And two, I joined one of those like Carnival Facebook groups things, like one of those Town of Carnival, you know, watch things. And uh, I don't have a Facebook account because of those two things right there. Um, it's just a place where we go to complain. So we took one command, couldn't do it at all. Um, I need to get back to the text. <clears throat> Matthew five twenty says this: For I tell you. And Jesus says, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. So Jesus says, you need a greater righteousness than the scribes and the Pharisees. The scribes and the Pharisees were great at keeping rules. In fact, they had a low view of God's law. They thought they were doing well. But what does Jesus say over and over and over again? You honor me with your lips, but your hearts are far from me. Jesus calls them whitewashed tombs. You look like a clean tomb today. He says you're clean on the outside, outside looks real nice, and you're dead on the inside. We need a heart-level righteousness. We aren't called to just obey the letter of the law. We're called to obey the spirit of the law. And in fact, in the rest of this chapter, Jesus is gonna take these six different kind of common Christian practices and said, here's the letter of the law. You've heard it say, don't murder and the Pharisees are like, yep, done, didn't do that. Check that box. And Jesus says, but I say to you, you've missed the entire heart of the law. You've missed the spirit of the law is to love God and love your neighbor. And you're walking around with anger and hatred towards one another and gossiping and slandering and all those kind of things. You've heard it said, don't commit adultery. And the Pharisees are like, check, never done that. I'm good. Look at how righteous I am. And Jesus says, you've missed the entire heart of the law. He says, yeah, you might have checked the box outwardly, but inwardly you're lusting after women all over the place. You're committing adultery in your heart to the person that you're married to over and over and over again. We've missed the entire heart and spirit of the law. So Jesus is gonna take these different practices and say, yeah, here's the religious climb the ladder way to do it. And here's a gospel way to obey this Christian practice, this text, this spiritual discipline. Here's how the religious people do it creates no heart-level righteousness, and here's how I call you to do it. Those who've been saved by me and redeemed by me, not to win your salvation, but because you already have it. And this is how we view God's law. Let me just skip to the end for a second. Now, if you're in Christ, we don't obey God's law for his love, for his affirmation. I don't get up and read my Bible in the morning so God will love me more. He won't. He already loves me as much as he can. I don't obey him so that I'll earn more of his love or I'll earn more of his affirmation or his affection, any of those things, I obey him because I already have it. And I want to remind myself of all that he has done for me and how much he loves me so that I won't go out and try to find my significance or my worth or my value or my beauty in the world, in other relationships, on social media, all those kind of things. I'll remind myself of who I am in Christ that I already have it and I won't go looking for it in the world. Do you see the difference? And Jesus is getting to the heart of the law. Unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom 
of heaven. You need a righteousness that is at the heart level. And here's what I want you to see this morning is that the law and obedience to the law cannot do it. It can't. If you are trying to obey your way to God this morning, if you're here because you're just hoping that God will look at you and be proud of you, and love you more because you attended church this morning or you read your Bible or you gave to a charity this week or whatever it is, you will ne- you'll be crushed by that burden. In fact, we'll see in just a second that the law exposes our sin. Let me just show you. Um, we're gonna leave Matthew for the rest of our time today. Um, and I wanna show you this. This is what Martin Luther probably, uh, doesn't probably, Martin Luther calls this the central paragraph of all of the scriptures. Um, John Piper says this is the greatest paragraph ever written, not just in the Bible, but in like human history. This is the greatest paragraph ever written. Um, It's in Romans 3, and uh, it'll be on the screens. If you want to turn there, you can. I'd love for you to see it for yourself so you don't just take my word for it. Uh, I'm going to start in verse 20. And Paul makes no mistake. What does he say in verse 20? For by works of the law... No human being will be justified in his sight. Nobody can be justified. Nobody can be good enough by their own works of the law for God to look at you and say, you've done it. You're smart enough. You're wise enough. You're now good enough that I declare you righteous. None of us can. And if you're on that ladder this morning, there's good news for you. You don't have to climb the ladder to win God's love. In fact, the gospel is Jesus came down from heaven and has given you his love freely in the gospel, which we'll talk about. But for by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. And here's what I want you to see. Since through the law comes knowledge of sin, that the law is not a ladder that we're supposed to climb. In fact, the law of God for his people and for us actually just shows us how sinful we are. It's not a ladder. It's actually meant to be a mirror to show us how sinful we are. In fact, Paul later will say that sin existed before the law showed up. But when the law came, sin increased, trespass increased. And then he says, uh, but when grace came, you know, Grace abounds all the more. But what he's saying here, let me give you an example. If you pick a commander, if you pick, let's, let's all pretend today that our goal when we leave here is to, you're gonna be really intentional about this. Like I hear there's a football game tonight while you're there or watching it with people, um, all those kind of things that you're gonna love God with all of your heart, all of your soul, all of your mind and all of your strength. You're gonna be really intentional about that when we leave here. You're just gonna do it in your own might. You're just gonna make yourself do this Try that. And when you are intentionally have a standard and you're trying to meet the goal of the law, you see just how sinful you are, don't you? You see when you finally have a standard, you see just how you, much you can't meet it, can't you? When I'm trying, like, I just wanna love God in all of my thoughts, right? All of my mind, don't wanna have any selfish thoughts, all those kind of things. And the more you try to do that, the more you see how sinful you are. That the law magnifies our sin. Paul says in Romans 3.20, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. The more we try to obey the law, the more we see just how much we can't. And that's the bad news. And we'll get to the good news in a second. But one of the purposes of the Old Testament law was to govern God's people. And we'll talk about um, that the problem wasn't the law. 
The law was given to govern God's people. It's given to govern us today and how we live our lives and if we submit to it and all those kind of things. But the more we try to do this, the more we realize that in our own flesh, we can't do it. We just can't. We won't be good enough. So what does he say? Verse 21. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. So there's a righteousness available to us that's apart from the law. But what does he say about the law? Here's another purpose of the law. Although the law and the prophets, the Old Testament, they bore witness to it. They were pointing to it. So not only was the law given to um, the nation of Israel and given to us to show us our need for a savior, to show us our sin, but the law was pointing to the very solution. It was pointing to the savior. Over and over again, all of these different figures of the Old Testament. This is why the Bible goes out of its way. If you pick any of the Old Testament heroes, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, David, Moses, pick any of them. The Bible goes out of its way to be completely honest about their reputation. The yes, God did good things through them, but they were selfish. They were adulterers. They were murderers. All of those kind of things. Why? All throughout the Old Testament, it's pointing to we need a greater David. We need a greater Moses. We need a greater king who could do what David couldn't do. We need a wiser Solomon. We need a, a, a greater mediator than Moses. Yeah, these people serve their purpose, but it's pointing all throughout the Old Testament to something greater. And what is Jesus saying in this text? I'm the fulfillment of those things. I'm the greater Abraham. I'm the greater Moses. I'm the greater David. The judges, I'm the greater judge. I'm the greater king. I'm the greater prophet. I'm the greater father. I'm the greater sacrifice. That all of the Old Testament, it was exposing our sin as we tried to obey it, and it was also pointing to the redemption, pointing to the Savior, if we would have eyes to see it and ears to hear it, that Jesus is the fulfillment. He's the one, he's the figure that all of the Old Testament was pointing to. He is the righteousness apart from the law. And Paul's gonna tell us that. But let me just say this. Through the law comes knowledge of sin. Through the law comes knowledge of sin, right? That if you are trying to win your salvation through the law, it will crush you. And let me just say this. This is why we don't preach Jesus as your example for salvation. Here's Jesus, here's what he's did. Now you go and do that and God will love you. Because Jesus is the law, right? And if you try to just follow the perfect example of Jesus to save yourself, it'll crush you every single week. And you'll walk away, there's no way I can do this. This is why we preach Jesus as your example, not for your salvation, but from your salvation. Jesus has already won your salvation for you and now we follow his example, not to win his love, not to try to earn it, but because he's already given it to us freely. We don't preach, here's what Jesus did. Now you gotta go and do this for God to love you. No, 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 Jesus did that as your substitute. Now we follow his example because he's already won the victory for us. He's already won the reward for us. He's already won the blessings of salvation for us. And he's freely given it to us in the gospel. You see that? So he says, and we'll probably just get through this paragraph and wrap up this morning, but he says this, <clears throat> the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned, you probably are aware of this verse, and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. 
This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. Let me just stop there because some of you are like, Parker, I was tracking with you and then you said divine forbearance and I have no idea what that means. Let me explain what he's talking about here. That God for all time would be the just and the justifier. When he's talking about his divine forbearance here, what he's talking about is how God showed grace in the Old Testament. That Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. In fact, Paul in Galatians, which Galatians is a very condensed argument. Paul, his argument in Galatians is, how can salvation be based on your works if Abraham had God's blessing, had salvation, had the favor of God in Genesis when the law didn't even show up until 500 years later in Exodus 20? How can Abraham win his salvation by works if the law didn't even show up till 500 years later? So what Paul is saying here is that, no, Abraham was justified by faith, and that's Romans 5. He gets into all of that. Abraham was, he believed God and God said, you are righteous, not because your works, but because your trust and your faith in me. And in God's divine forbearance, when Abraham broke the law, he didn't instantly just die. Why? Because in God's divine forbearance, he put Abraham's punishment for his sin in that moment on Jesus later. Do you see that? So God could use these figures like Abraham and Moses and David, and yes, they were all flawed. The Bible doesn't try to hide their flaws. They were broken. They needed a savior. And it wasn't based on their works. They trusted Jesus just like you and I. Any of the Old Testament saints who God in his mercy allowed to keep on living, it was because the punishment of their sin was put on Jesus because they had faith in the Messiah who was to come. That's what Paul's talking about here um, when he mentions divine forbearance. Uh, Verse 26, it was to show his righteousness at the present time in the Old Testament so that he might be just... Right? He doesn't let any sin go unpunished. He puts it on Jesus, but he's also the justifier that he lets Abraham and David and Moses live. He's just and doesn't let any sin go unpunished, but he's the justifier. And because of their faith, he gives them righteousness and he allows them in his grace to keep serving his purposes. Do you see that? Um, verse 27, then what becomes of our boasting? It is excluded, right? Paul's a master at answering the natural question that comes up in our own minds as we read his letters. If our righteousness is not based on our works, if it's apart from works, if our works just show us how wretched and how sinful and how broken we are, and we have a righteousness that's apart from the law and is through faith in the finished work of Jesus, then can we boast at all? Paul says, no, we can't. Ephesians 2, it's by grace that you've been saved through faith. It is not of yourselves. It is a free gift of God so that no one can boast. And one of the scariest parts of the Sermon on the Mount is Matthew 7. Uh, That verse used to haunt me for my whole life when people get before Jesus and he says, depart from me, I never knew you. But if you think about it and you read the text, what are those people boasting in and standing on when they meet Jesus? They look back and they say, Lord, didn't we? Look at the works I did. Didn't I cast out demons in your name? Didn't I prophesy? Didn't I do all of these things? How arrogant do you have to be to stand before the God of the universe and say, look what I did. Look how good I was. And in that moment, Jesus is gonna say, you still don't get it. Our only boast when we meet Christ one day, and we will all stand before him one day, and our only boast will be the finished work of Jesus Christ and his blood shed for me on the cross. He's my boast. We will never stand before God and say, look at all the things I did. 
This is why I deserve to be here. They're standing on their works. So he says, we can't boast. Then what becomes of our boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? By a law of works? No, but by the law of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Or is God the God of Jews only? Is he not only the God of Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also, since God is one who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. And we'll talk about that another time. Paul's argument has been, is this just for the Jews or the Gentiles? But Romans 1, he says, no, it's gospel of salvation for all, first to the Jew and to the Greek. And then he says this, verse 31. Do we then overthrow the law? What does that mean for the law? Do we get rid of it? Do we throw it out? Same question Jesus was faced with. Do we pull the rug out from under it? Do we not need it anymore? And Paul says, by no means. The strongest way to say no in the Greek New Testament. On the contrary, we uphold the law. We uphold it. See, the problem was never the law. The problem was not God's plan to institute kings and judges and prophets. The problem wasn't all of the rules. That's not the problem. The problem has always been us. The problem has always been our sin. The law of God is perfect. In fact, the law shows us God's perfect standard. It shows us his holiness. It shows us his righteousness. It shows us his justice and his mercy. It shows us the character of God. It shows us all of those things. The problem was never the law. It was never the kings. It was never, or the kingship. It was never um, the office of prophet or judge or patriarch or any of those things. The problem was always the man in those places. It was the sin in us. Paul mentions this in Romans 7. He says, what shall we say then? That the law is sin? Is the law bad? Is the law sinful? Once again, by no means. It is not. Yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had said you shall not covet. Paul will go on to say that this law that promised life, and the law does, that's the good news of of the law, is that was the covenant. If you do these things, you'll be blessed. And notice how Jesus shows up to his disciples and reverses the order. You're blessed by your faith. You don't have to work for it. You don't have to do these things in the Sermon on the Mount. You're blessed. Blessed be, blessed be, blessed be, blessed be. Blessed are the poor, blessed are those who mourn, blessed are the meek, right? Where the law was, you have to do these things to receive God's blessing. The new covenant, the new testament, this new covenant in Christ is you're blessed through your faith and now you go and do these things. Not to try to be blessed, not to try to earn his love, but because you already have it. And that's the good news of the gospel is that the law cannot save us. It shows us the holiness of God. It shows us the standard of God. It shows us all the ways that we don't meet it. And the good news of the gospel is that Hebrews talks about this. If you want a, a book to read in light of this message, just start working your way through the book of Hebrews. It just picks any Old Testament figure, any Old Testament office, and talks about how Jesus is the fulfillment of it. it talks about how Jesus is the greater high priest, right? You can imagine the Old Testament, The high priest has to go in the temple once a year, every year, and like tie a rope to himself in case he dies. And then he goes in there and he's done all these washings and he's got to make a sacrifice on behalf of the people. You can imagine year after year after year, the people are probably wondering, okay, when are we going to be released from this? When are we going to have to stop doing this? And they couldn't because they keep on sinning every year, right? And Hebrew says, no, 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 we have a great high priest now. 
the perfect one from God. We don't get rid of the old covenant. Jesus fulfilled it, right? Someone had to fulfill it. God doesn't just say, well, you guys didn't keep your end. We're scrapping the whole thing. God makes a promise and God will keep his promise. So here's what's great about the old covenant is God himself stepped out of heaven. We could never meet it. We could never measure up. And the good news of the gospel this morning is I can't do it and you can't do it. So here's the good news. You can't climb the ladder. So God came down and met his own standard on our behalf. That's the good news of the gospel. God stepped out of heaven and he met the standard for us. He obeyed all of the commandments of the law and he is the figure that all of these offices pointed to in the law. He's the greater high priest. So we're now he's at the right hand of God and we don't have to do all of these rituals and go through all these steps to approach God. We have full access because we're righteous and holy in Jesus. So we don't need a earthly human priest. You don't need me to determine if your sins are forgiven or not. The cross says they're forgiven. We don't need an earthly human priest to forgive our sins and all those kind of things. We have a great high priest and he's standing at the right hand of God saying, yeah, I paid for that and I paid for that and I paid for that and I paid for that. And the writer of Hebrews, if you wanna read, I encourage you, dive into Hebrews, talks about how Jesus is the greater high priest. He's the greater sacrifice, right? That we don't have to annually and weekly and monthly make all these sacrifices. that Jesus is the greater sacrifice once for all. He's the greater temple, If you think about the temple, what's the temple essentially? It's where God and man dwell together. So we see semblances of that in the garden. You see Adam and Eve and God together. But then what happens? Our sin separates our communion and our intimacy with God. So what does God do? He establishes a type, a a figure in the Old Testament, the tabernacle that's gonna point forward to something greater. So the tabernacle is this kind of mobile tent where God meets with man. And then they establish a more permanent one where the actual temple in Jerusalem, where God dwells with man, but then that thing gets knocked down in AD 70. But even before that, Jesus shows up in John 2, and what does he say? He says, destroy this temple, and I will rebuild it in three days. And he wasn't talking about the building, because Jesus is the final fulfillment of God dwelling with man. He is God with us. He's God in human flesh. He's fully God and fully man. And Jesus ascends, but what does he do? He doesn't leave us to be alone without God. He sends his spirit with us, and this is why the Bible calls us temples of the Holy Spirit. Why? Because it is God dwelling inside of man. We are now a temple of God. You're a temple of the Holy Spirit. And then one day, we will look forward to the greater temple in heaven, where it is God eternally and perfectly and harmoniously dwelling with man forever. Jesus is the fulfillment of the temple. So we don't have to obey those ceremonial laws and all the civic laws and all of those things. Jesus was the greater Israel. If you look at the Old Testament law, it was essentially um, categorized by there was civic law that was given to the nation of Israel because God redeemed them and said, you're my nation and I'm your God. I'm gonna lead you. Here's how I want you to lead as a nation. And Jesus showed up and he was the greater Israel in our place, the greater Israel in Israel's place. So we aren't held, Jesus fulfilled all of those. He obeyed those and we're not the nation of Israel anymore. The church of Jesus Christ is now uh, made up of people of every tribe and every tongue and every nation. So we aren't bound by the civic law. We're not bound by all the ceremonial laws where you have to clean yourself and make yourself clean enough to get to God. Jesus has made us clean in the gospel. He's washed away our sin. But there is some elements of the moral law. And you see Jesus affirm those to not murder, to not hate, to not commit adultery, to not lust, all of those things, to love God and to love neighbor. Jesus shows up and he affirms those things. But now we obey them not to win God's love, 
not to be good enough for God's love, but because we already have it. And that's the good news of the gospel. Jesus wasn't coming to get rid of the law, to abolish it. He was coming to fulfill it. And that's the good news. And it's no coincidence. In fact, if you think about it, we'll close with this. If you think about um, Moses <clears throat> in Exodus, what happens? The 10th plague, God sends the angel of death down to his people and to the Egyptians. And if you take God at his word, if you trust God, have faith in what God has spoken and you sacrifice a lamb and put the blood of the lamb on your doorpost, then death will pass over you. And it happens, right? Angel comes, those who um, have faith, put the blood of the lamb on their doorpost and they're passed over and God frees, Egypt, or frees Israel from their captivity to Egypt and on they go. But as soon as they leave, what does God say? He says, every year I want you to stop and I want you to remember. And some of you, if you're wondering, okay, why don't we obey the Passover anymore as New Testament believers? The Passover every year was the time, same weekend of the year, where they would look back to what God has done. They would look back to their rescue from captivity to the sacrifice of the lamb, but it was also pointing forward. They had to do it every year, every year, every year. It was pointing forward to when Jesus shows up on the scene, what does John the Baptist, what does Paul, what does Peter call him? The lamb of God. It was a symbol, it was a shadow pointing to the true substance that was Jesus, that he would be the true lamb of God perfect, spotless, without blemish. He would fulfill and meet all the requirements, all 613 commands. Jesus didn't miss any of them, didn't budge on any of them, completely obeyed all of them. And he would be the spotless lamb who would be slain. And his blood would trickle down a post for us. And if we put our faith in him, we would be freed from our bondage to sin. And now Jesus, it is no coincidence that the night that Jesus was betrayed and the night that he has the Lord's Supper is Passover weekend. Jesus is saying, I'm the new lamb. I'm the new sacrifice. You don't need another sacrifice. And now, as often as you gather together and as often as you do this, we don't obey Passover. What do we do? We celebrate the Lord's Supper because Jesus took that command of the Old Testament and transformed it and extended it. And now we obey this new covenant command to take communion. And we look back to the greater lamb and the greater sacrifice, greater freedom from captivity, but we also look forward because the work of God is not finished. Salvation work is, is finished. Jesus said it on the cross, it is finished. But there are still parts of the Old Testament law that yet to, are yet to be fulfilled. And Jesus says they won't fade until they've come to pass. And now there's more prophecies in the new covenant and more predictions and more things that are coming. And the work of salvation is finished. You can have salvation before you leave this morning if you put your faith in the finished work of Christ and no longer stand on your own works. But there is still the work of God that's yet to be done. He's chosen to use you and use me to be means by which he accomplishes that. But the good news is it's not based on us. It's not dependent on us. Philippians 1.6, he began the good work in us and he will be faithful to complete it. Not a dot, not an iota will fade or will pass until it is all accomplished. 
So now we view the law as good and right, and it rejoices our heart. It does all of these things. I'll close by reading uh, just a section of Psalm 19, but James actually calls this the perfect law that gives freedom. What's so ironic about our culture, teenagers especially, is that our culture says, just do whatever you want, pursue your own truth, go your own way, do what feels right, and that's freedom. And we all know, we've lived enough life to know that that actually brings bondage and slavery, doesn't it? To sin, to our relationships, if I just wanna go and do what feels good, do what's right in my own eyes, what culture says is freedom to go and do that, I end up enslaved to regret, to mistakes, And what James says, the paradox of the gospel and of the Bible is that when you submit your life to the perfect law of God, that it actually brings freedom. Not when you go and do your own thing, but when you submit your life to God. He created the world. He knows how it works. He knows how relationships works. He knows how our heart works. And when you submit your life to his word, it actually brings more freedom, more joy, more peace. So now we're not obeying God's law to win salvation. We obey God's law now for greater intimacy with him. Because I know when I'm not doing these things, when I'm not pursuing him by his word, when I'm not remembering the gospel, man, do I go looking for things in the world that they, the world can't give me. It affects my intimacy with Christ. It affects my intimacy with you, with my family, with my wife. But now we aren't obeying God's law For salvation, we obey it because it creates a greater intimacy with the God of the universe. The one who saved you, the one who cast your sin as far as the east is from the west, he wants to know you. And it's not like when you sin, God loves you less, right? It's the more that I obey God's word and the more that I study it, the more that I meditate on it, the more I love him more. God's love isn't based on your behavior still. He's not moving. But I know when I sin, when I go and wander, when I look for my significance or my worth or my beauty in the world instead of in the gospel, that it affects my intimacy with him. And all I have to do is repent, to turn, as James says, to draw near to God, and he is right there. He draws near to me. So now we read the word because it's good for us and right for us, because we've been saved, not to try to save ourselves. So take comfort that the things that the scriptures say that haven't come to pass, church, they will come to pass. Things that God has promised, they will come to pass. Let me read this to you and then I'll pray for us. This is Psalms 19. It says this, just five verses. It says, the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them your servant is warned, and in keeping them there is great reward. We don't obey the law anymore to try to win God's love. We treasure it, we meditate on it, we know it because we already have it. And we wanna remind ourselves of it. Psalms 119 says it's a lamp into our feet, it's a light into our path. We hide it in our hearts because it increases our intimacy with God and it helps us not to walk in sin. How can a young man keep his way pure? By guarding it according to your word. He's created the world. He's given us instruction on how to live. Not so he'll love us, but because he loves us. So church, let's be a people who are about God's word. 
We submit our lives to it. We teach it. We know it. We treasure it. We study it. Not for outward righteousness, but because I want to know the one who saved me. And I want to remind myself of what he's done so I won't go try to save myself tomorrow in the works that I think I can do. Let me pray for us. Lord, thank you that all of the Old Testament was pointing to you. That it wasn't pointing to another plan where I had to try again and try to do harder, work smarter, be better. But God, it was pointing to you. That you came and you fulfilled the whole thing. God, now I can study it to know you better. I can see God's heart. If it was pointing to you, God, I want to study the things that point to you and reveal who you are. 2 Timothy 3 says, all scripture, Old and New Testament, is God-breathed and is useful for us. So God, help us to study your word, to be people that are governed by it, to live our lives in submission to it. God, because you love us, we want to know you by your word. So help us to be a church that does that. And if you just want to take some time, take the next 30 seconds, 45 seconds, and I know we kind of covered a lot. This message could land in a lot of places. For some of you, you need to receive the free gift of righteousness through Jesus, not through your own works. Come grab me down front. Come talk to one of our elders. We'll stay here all afternoon if we need to. Some of you, maybe you just need to spend time in prayer. Might be adoration for what God has done. Might be confession for what you've done. Approach the throne of grace. You have a high priest who's there. He's forgiven you. Let those things be made known to him. Find greater intimacy with Christ this morning. Not because of anything you can do, but because of what he's done for you. Take about 30 seconds and then the band uh, will lead us in a response.